You never know when life's going to change. For my wife, Allison, and I, it came in the form of a phone call from our pediatrician. She called to tell us that our son had been diagnosed with ALD. Like many of you, that memory will probably stay with us forever, but we refuse to be defined by it. It took some time to get ourselves back up, but once we started to understand and look for answers, it gave us hope. And the minute we secured that hope, we could take action. We knew we could be part of this amazing community and help make a difference. Join us while I share stories from our journey, the easy ones and the hard ones, and about all the amazing people we have met along the way. Welcome to the ALD Family Podcast. Episode 1. How a young, new wave punk DJ unravels the mysteries of ALD, and in doing so, discovers a gray zone. When we first got Lucas's diagnosis of ALD, they also told us that it was considered a us. Obviously, Allison and myself had no idea what that meant. We would later come to know that it means variant of unknown significance. Could this mean that this variant of ALD would not affect our son? What we did know is we needed to find out more. And that's when we found Dr. Stefan Kemp. Stefan's story starts in the late 80s in Amsterdam. He's a youth center DJ playing the latest new wave and punk. But really at heart, he's a curator. He searches what's out there. He goes through the records one by one, putting them in order, trying to figure out what's most relevant, what goes together. He curates the perfect playlist for the young kids that are out on their Saturday night. The first thing I asked Stefan was how does a community center DJ become a researcher of a rare unknown disease called ALD? I studied biology in the 80s at the University of Amsterdam. Obviously, I had no clue what I wanted to do. And as a student, you, yeah, you're just following what you like. I was lucky that at that time we still could do long rotations. So I did two rotations of nine months. The second one was at, uh, at the AMC where I work. And when I was doing that, uh, there was the year in 1993 when the AOD gene was identified. Because the AOD gene was identified, uh, there was an interest from the patients to start finding mutations. So there was money available for a scientist to work on this project for two years. And I was walking around. (laughs) Apparently they liked me, so they asked me if I wanted to take on this job. Yeah, so no job interview. Uh, I just started. Something that Stefan noticed very early on was there wasn't just one main variant of ALD. If you looked at those papers, it was clear that there were so many different mutations. Though sometimes in the disease you see that there is a mutation that you see quite often, uh, but that was clearly not the case for ALD. He's suddenly sitting on all this information, some old, some new. As a curator, he knows he needs to organize it and share it. So I was looking at it, and 
Yeah, well, this is the late 90s, so internet was just new. How cool is that to start a website? Um, I was collecting all this mutation. I thought, yeah, well, uh, this, this can be of use. So I went to Hugo Moser, Professor Hugo Moser. Every week we, we met, we had some coffee, and we, we talked about everything. And then I, I told him that, well, Dr. Moser, I have this idea. Uh, we have all these mutations. Um, uh, why don't we put them on the internet? Uh, <laughs> he said, oh, Stefan, that's an excellent idea. I support you. So I bought a book, HTML for Dummies, and I just started building a website. And at that time, that was possible. So we put it on the internet. There were maybe 100 mutations or so. Or, and at that time, there were diagnostic labs that, that did the, uh, the mutation analysis, and they participated with us. So we could share this information. Of course, there was no patient information linked to it. But so they sent me by fax all these mutations, and I would look at them, and I would put them in the, uh, in the website. Now that the database is online, a funny thing starts to happen. People searching for ALD are stumbling upon Stefan's website. Every time they land on it, it pushes it up higher in the search results. So like anything with relevant and organized information, people begin to ask for more. So I, I was looking at people who visited the website, and then I started receiving emails from all over the world, people asking for Lorenzo's oil, people asking for information, and, and then something became clear. People are looking for information, and supposedly this is a trustworthy website. So the people doing building this or behind this website, yeah, they, 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 you can ask them questions, and, and then they also received answers. <laughs> so and then I thought, well, Maybe we should do something with this. And then at the United Literacy Foundation thing in, I think, 20 years ago, 2001, 2002 or whatever, Paul Watkins, who I also knew from, from Hopkins, he always did the AOD Biochemistry 101 for women. I always liked to listen to him because he was my one of my biochemistry uh, mentors. We were sitting in the evening drinking a beer and we were talking about it. And I said, well, Paul, can I ask you a question? Can I put your your lecture on on the internet? Uh, the biochemistry of LD and yeah, he liked it. That is one of the most visited pages. From from that on, it built on. We uh, I asked Charlie Peters to do a bone marrow transplant. Jerry Raymond uh, did something on Lorenzo's oil. Then we continued, and then at one moment I realized, well, yeah, now we're doing this. His colleagues that help translations and help build pages. They do that because they like the idea. It's freely accessible. You don't have to sign up. And one of the reasons is that it's so successful. It got me thinking. With all this new data, when was the first recorded case of ALD? The first publication is from 18, out of my head, 1896. It is, uh, it's a German paper because at that time uh, the scientific literature was in German. It was published by physicians from Charité in Berlin, a famous hospital. And they described a boy with lesions in his brain and infiltrations. Uh, and it's amazing if, if you read that paper. My, German is not that good, but uh, Mark Engeler, my uh, my colleague, he uh, we did a paper in a review paper in Nature. Uh, we decided to go back in literature and then go back and back and back and back. We found five, six, seven of these early pa uh, publications. 
and they're all they're all in German. And uh, so he he just as a physician he just wanted to read and, and understand them. And uh, and he told me that he was blown away by the details in those publications and the accuracy. Uh, so until the seventies, it was ba- mainly the brain disease and then uh, Budka in I think Austria. He described males with the spinal cord disease, and they were linked to ALD. And, and then it became apparent that, hey, this is weird. We have this lethal brain disease in young boys, and we have this slowly progressive disease in, in men in, in adulthood. So he's seeing the boys and the older males, but then comes the discovery that females are also affected. Until the late 90s, it was always believed that it was, it was a male disease. But if you would go to family meetings, the women were in wheelchairs. At one moment, we said, this is not a male disease. This, 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 there are, this really affects uh, women. And so in the, um, uh, around 2010, we, uh, Mark Engele, he was a PhD student in my group, and now he's, he's in the uh, Department of Child Neurology. He said, well, we have to look at that. So we, we asked the Dutch patient, uh, organiz- uh, AOD patient organization, if the women wanted to participate in, in, uh, in a clinical trial. And then it turned out that this was up to 80, 90% of women eventually get spinal cord disease. It's later. They almost never develop adrenal insufficiency. There are some isolated cases of the brain disease, but it's... Uh, it's 80 to 90% that if you, if you, and there's a link with age. In males, we cannot predict anything. We don't understand, but in, in women, it, it's, it's rather predictable. With not seeing cerebral ALD in women, can you learn something from that? Yeah, there are some, some ideas, and the most obvious hypothesis is the fact that they have two X chromosomes. In a female embryo, each cell inactivates one of the two X chromosomes, and that's a completely random process. So if you would look in a female, then 50% of the cells are normal with respect to LD, and 50% are disease. This is a more or less random process, but it changes from, from 50-50 to, to 30-70, and then so then the question is, at which percentage do you tumble, and can you uh, develop a brain disease? And it seems to be almost to zero hundred so zero normal cells and a hundred disease cells because the eyes a few isolated cases that uh, have been described i was involved in one of them there was a young girl with cerebral ald so the brain disease and when we looked at the dna all the cells had the disease gene active so there was no backup so that is that is at the most logical what it also tells you that if a certain percent of cells that are normal help you or protect you from getting the brain formed, then if you then think about treatment, you don't have to treat all the cells. And that percentage can be not that high. And funny is that funny is if you think that true and you go to a bone marrow transplant, which is very effective for the, for, for uh, stopping the, the brain disease. What is most likely the curative effect 
is that you get these uh, white blood cells, what we call macrophages, but then they become microglia cells in the brain and they are scavengers and they, they dampen the inflammatory reaction. You still have ALD cells there, but only a minor part, a small part of these cells are now normal. If you, if you compare that to what we see in women, then there should be an analogy there. And of course, this is, this is thinking, hypothesizing, but it does make sense. And there is, there is data, there is evidence that this, this must be true, at least in some sense. Sometimes I find it difficult talking to Stefan, not because of his accent, but his deep understanding of how ALD affects those who have been diagnosed. In my quest to understand what is of us, I wondered what effect newborn screening had on the database. I realized that, yeah, now with newborn screening, it serves a completely different purpose. Because, as I said, the data that's there all came from affected patients. And so there are so many different variants or mutations in this gene. So there, there is a chance that a newborn comes out of newborn screening, and then you do DNA diagnostics, and you find this variant. And is it, is it disease-causing, or is it an innocent bystander. How helpful is it that there is this resource where you can just go and see, hey, oh, I find this variant and oh, it is found in, in, in so many LD patients. Yeah, then it must be disease causing. Doesn't tell you what it's doing, which form of the disease, uh, because, uh, but we, because we don't provide that information because we cannot predict it. So then I did something uh, I still think is quite crazy, but I will do it again. I realized that now the question is different. So now what is important is the number of affected patients for any given mutation. Because that gives you more power, the, the meaning of, the, of that mutation. So I went back to 1993 and I started looking in the literature and finding all those publications on ALD and mutations. I rebuilt the website and, I, and then I said, okay, so I need, also need to track down the number of cases for every mutation. And I started this whole big Excel file and, uh, and I basically rebuilt the website. You know, if you do something like this, I mean, maybe it's just me, but it becomes a little addictive. I was getting hungry for more information. And then I realized you also have these scientific papers where people use cell lines from patients. So what now if you use the cell line from a patient, tell in the paper what the mutation is. In that study, you show that the breakdown of fatty acids is not so good. Then that mutation is clearly pathogenic. So now if you link that to the information from papers where just patients are recorded or, or are reported, then you increase your information of each variant when I rebuilt it, I decided, okay, so now just giving, okay, three papers, and here are the references, do your thing. I said, okay, now I need to mention the number of cases, and then write a story for every variant, wh what I know, and then, of course, give the references. So sometimes you have a mutation, and it says, well, identified in 10 ALD cases uh, with references, and then functional studies in cells show that it destroys the breakdown capacity of ferrochemical acids. So then you have N patients, and you have biochemistry. That is unique. You don't see that in, in, in papers. 
I think that is what it serves, is that it brings together all this information. And it's curated by somebody who knows <laughs> the, uh, the background. This is about the time Allison and I met Stefan for the first time. We were interested to talk to him about Lucas's VUS and the possibility of milder phenotypes. We do see that he has MILFs that have clearly milder phenotypes. And then they have brothers and they have uncles and they have everything. And they're all mild. Of course, it's still possible that there's a child. But then we look at the biochemistry, we look at the cell lines, we look at the fatty acids, and you see, hey, these are also at a slightly different level. Patients has ALD, but they clearly have a milder phenotype. So maybe if we have enough of those ALD patients with mild phenotype and we see that they all are sitting a little lower, then we have the disease zone. And then part of the gray zone, this is ALD, but it's likely, uh, to a certain extent likely, we have to be cautious, disease-causing but milder variant. If you think about it, they should be there. As a parent, this is probably the most important thing that comes from the database. The idea that there's a gray zone. Numerous screening is population screening. So there is a chance that you find newborns that have just barely elevated biomarker, which is fatty acids. And there is a gray zone there. Not binary. It's it's. <laughs> I always thought it was yes no, but it, it, there we now know there is a gray zone. So what if the measurement ends up in the gray zone? You do the mutation analysis in the gene, and you find a variant, and it's reported as a fuss or it's reported as unknown, uh, and sometimes it's reported as unknown, but then turned out that the information is in the database, uh, or you go to the database and you see hey this has been reported, and people have looked at it. Yeah, and, and when they look at in, in skin cells and the function of the protein, it's completely normal. But this is a benign variant. Yes, that clearly affects how uh, you should follow your patients. In the Netherlands, my colleague is very, very clear about that. If, if, you, if you have a variant in the ALD gene and you came out of, of screening and turns out that uh, it's an innocent bystander and there's proof, there's, there's really experimental proof of that then you should not be treated as a patient. Sometimes it happens that we, we do this for patients, um, for physicians who, who come to us and with a fuss or unknown, unknown, is, is this pathogenic, yes or no? Because that's always the question. And then, yeah, if it's in the normal range, it's an innocent bystander, it's benign, it's, it's no ALD. So don't treat this family as patients. If it's in the proven ALD zone, it's clearly pathogenic. Follow the protocol, surveillance, MRIs, the whole thing, adrenal function testing, uh, everything. Yeah, if it's in the gray zone, that's where the tricky part is. And then I would say, because until we have a better insight in the gray zone, you should treat this newborn as a possible potential ALD patient. So then oops, surveillance, MRI, uh, adrenal function, the whole thing. The task that we have put, one of the tasks that we have put ourselves uh, is make that gray zone smaller. One of the ways that Stefan made the gray zone smaller was by developing a skin biopsy test. This test could tell them whether the cells were working properly or not. Upon learning about it, Allison and I signed Lucas up. And after a biopsy, we sent Lucas's cells to Amsterdam. I asked him what was going to come from all this data. 
you're going to uh, write a paper on 50 or 60 of these tests done now, or maybe even a little more. So we have a pretty good idea about the the disease zone and the, and the cultural role, and we do see the gray zone there. So this information we want to publish, I think we have the largest series of this. We need to publish it to tell the community that this test is available, because that's not our message. It's not so obvious. Because if you are a neurologist and you find patients with a spinal cord disease, then your differential diagnosis, LD is there. So it's not such a weird disease for you. But if you have never seen this disease and now suddenly there's this family with this newborn coming out of newborn screening, your whole field of entry is completely different. And that's where I started realizing at the meetings of ELISA, that's where the database serves a purpose, but also the tests that we have developed uh, in the lab. You have the database, you have the biopsy test, you now have all this data. Can we fast forward five, 10 years? What's the ultimate goal here? What are you gonna be able to share back with the doctors and the parents on what this all means? We would love to predict for a newborn, which clinical path this newborn would go. Because now one in three boys will develop the brain disease, so two out of three won't. And if you think about that, if you could predict that, that's huge. Either you get a message, uh, you don't have to come to the hospital every six months. Uh, maybe we should do it every two years, I don't know. Uh, huh? But this is future, so I can say what I want now. <laughs> but if, if you could predict the likelihood with a certain high percentage of predictability or uh, likelihood, then your whole thinking of treatment is different. Because if you turn it around, if it's very likely that this boy will develop cerebral LD, now you have to wait for the first sign on the MRI before it, a bone marrow transplant can be, can be done. If with 90, 95% uh, certainty you can predict that a boy will develop LD, it's a whole different situation because people sometimes ask, why don't you do this preventively? That's because this is not buying a hamburger. This is, this is, this is, this is a whole different, different thing. It, uh, uh, and there is a chance that it fails. So there is, is some mortality and morbidity in the whole transplant procedure itself. Uh, it also costs a lot of money. So if you think, oh, it's two, two thirds chance that it, it's unnecessary. So, okay, uh, so if you can predict it, uh, Jaap-Jan Bulut in, in New York, transplanter, who years ago we talked about this, and uh, I asked him the question, that would it be good if you could predict it early on? And he said, yes, because the earlier you do a transplant, the, in a younger the child is, the, the, the better, it, the easier it is uh, to do. So yeah, if, if you pick up a boy with new screening and we would have a test, and it would it, it would allow you to predict with a certainty then then yeah then the whole follow up and treatment would be very different so that's a major major uh, but it, task but yeah it's uh, on the depressing side we've been looking for this uh, not just we but everybody has been looking for this for the last 20 years and we haven't found anything uh, on the positive note is that technology has improved so much from the moment we met him Stefan has been one of the coolest, friendliest, 
most knowledgeable people we've met. And he's not alone. A lot of the doctors, scientists, researchers, parents, just people in this ALD community, there's something special about it. I asked Stefan, what makes the ALD community so unique? Sometimes I have colleagues that work on mitochondria or other diseases, and they, they join us for a conference or whatever, and so often they say, this is different. Here are the patients, the physicians, companies, researchers, and everybody is together. I, I, one day I came up with an explanation. I always say we are all infected by the Yukamosa virus. If you go back, a lot of PIs in AOD research at one time in their career, they spent some time in, in Baltimore. Uh, yeah, why, why, would you, why would you switch to another disease if the environment is great? I think back to that young community center DJ that was just trying to keep the crowd going with his perfect playlist. Stefan has never stopped curating. It's just now called a database, papers, studies. He's always been organizing information in a way that makes it most relevant. Our first season of ALD Family Podcast will feature doctors, researchers, and five inspiring stories from a group of women who changed the course of ALD. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the ALD Family Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. And if you know others in the community who might benefit from this, please share with them. Thank you for joining us for the ALD Family Podcast. This has been a production of the ALD Family Weekend.